open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. This morning, uh, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which are prayers from the Puritans. And this is a prayer <clears throat> for the minister as he's about to preach. And so uh, let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord as we prepare to hear from his word. My master God, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth and an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought. Proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach and grace to apply them to men's and women's consciences. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects and that and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for thyself and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting thy mercy. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people and to set before them comforting considerations. Attend with power the truth preached and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that men might be made holy. I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness, that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Give me then refreshment among thy people. Help me not to treat excellent matters in a defective way or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a redeemer. Or be harsh in treating of Christ's death, its design and end, from lack of warmth and fervency. And keep me in tune with thee as I do thy work. For these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've set upon this expedition. We've gone through the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Right? The Torah. And we have covered Genesis, the beginnings. In the first 11 chapters, we see God's focus is upon all of the human race and looking at those four key events. And then attention is turned to the chosen race that God would develop through Abraham. And then we see those four key individuals. Genesis is the beginnings. And then we come to the book of Exodus, the departure. 
we find that the people, Abraham's family, has come to Egypt, 70 people, and over 430 years, they've developed to be over 2 million. They've been enslaved by the Egyptians, and they cry out to Yahweh, and God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses, through God's direction, leads the people out, and God brings those ten plagues to soften the heart of Pharaoh and let his people go. And they lead, they go out from the midst of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God gives them the revelation, the Ten Commandments, the directions in worship. They build the tabernacle, and God is pleased to have his glory dwell there. And then we come to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the instructions, the offerings, and the feasts. God teaches the people how to remove sin through the, the, the blood of the substitutionary animal, the innocent animal on their behalf. God also shows them how to re, retain fellowship with a holy God by giving them instructions in the law and, and the feasts and and the, the continual keeping of these things help them to stay in right fellowship with God. And then we come to the book of Numbers, the, the wilderness wandering. Starts with the old generation that came out of, out of Egypt. And God numbers them and organizes them. And then he leads them to the southern portion of the promised land. They send the spies in to look into the land and to see this is a land filled with, with uh, flowing with milk and honey, a land that is filled with fear of God, prepared for God to send his people in to take the land. And yet they come back with a bad report. Oh, there's giants in the land. The, the cities are fortified. We can't go in there. And they turn the hearts of God's people against him. And so God's discipline on them is that they're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation of adults dies and God raises up a new generation and he reorganizes them in the plains of Moab just east of the Jordan River. And then you come to the book of Deuteronomy, which we looked at last week, and you see Moses preaches three sermons. Right? Sermon number one, what God has done for Israel, the, the recounting of God's faithfulness. He reminds them of what God has done for them, how God has been faithful in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And then he preaches a second sermon, what God expects from Israel, and he, he renews or reviews the, the law that he has given them, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the the ceremonial law, the, the sacrifices, and the, the civil and social laws, how are they to treat one another, how they're to handle the property God's about to give them. How are they to handle justice issues? And then the last section, the last sermon, what God will do for Israel. Right? He reestablishes covenant with this new generation about to enter into the promised land. He lays his hands upon Joshua, transferring leadership to Joshua, and he goes up on the mountain, catches a glimpse of the promised land, and then he dies at the age of 120. 
Now we come to the book of Joshua. Joshua, a book of conquest. Joshua has now been given the mantle of leadership. And God says to Joshua, I will be with you just as I have been with Moses. No one will be able to stand before you. I will go ahead of you. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Joshua, you must be strong and courageous to lead these people. Be very strong and very courageous. And don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you'll be prosperous and then you'll be successful. Only be strong and very courageous. And so Joshua prepares the people and, and follows in obedience to God. And God parts the Jordan as he did the Red Sea. And they cross over on dry ground into the land of promise. And when they begin to eat the produce within the land, the manna, which has been falling from heaven faithfully for 40 years, stopped. And they now were enjoying the land flowing with milk and honey. And then God leads them into battle. And, and this book is divided into two sections. You've got the... the um, the conquest of the promised land. It is about dividing and conquering. And literally what they did uh, was they, they moved straight across the middle of the promised land from Jericho to Ai. And as they conquered there, they split the land in half so that the southern uh, peoples could not combine with the northern peoples and, and develop a, a, a major army against him. And so after he divided it in half, he went down south and conquered. Then he went north and conquered. And after they had conquered the peoples, then the second section is the settlement. They divided it up and settled it. They divided it into portions for each tribe as an inheritance. And then Joshua sent them to their inheritance. Go and take it. The people aren't completely out yet. It's your job to go in and take your portion and drive the rest out completely. For God will go with you and before you. God will give you victory if you will trust Him and obey. Then you have at the end of the book of Joshua that, that uh, farewell speech of Joshua, that message, that challenge to the people. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The gods of your fathers that they served in Egypt? Or the gods of the people whose land we've just taken? Well, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. We will serve the Lord. And the people say, oh, we're going to serve. We're going to serve the Lord. And then Joshua dies at the age of 110. There are a lot of passages in the book of Joshua that we could kind of zero in on. And I was, uh, at the beginning of the week, I was kind of wrestling with which, which passage should I, 
should I focus upon and asking the Lord? And God directed me to focus here on chapter 9 and what took place here. Because here in chapter 9 is the, really the only place where we see Joshua as the leader of Israel making a major gaffe. He learned a valuable lesson through a mistake that he and the, and the leaders made. A mistake we can learn from. The historical context is they've just conquered uh, Jericho and Ai. They've divided the land and they're about to go so south to, to continue their conquest. And we pick up there with chapter 9. They came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and the lowland and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, they heard of it. Heard of what? Well, they heard about them coming in and dividing the land this way. So then they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight Joshua with Israel. These are the southern uh, city-states, if you will. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they also acted craftily. And they set out as envoys and worn out, and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and parched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and they said to him to the men of, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, which were the people of Gibeon, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, well, we, are, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, I'm sorry, uh, we are your servants, verse 9, have come from a very far country. Because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. And now, behold, it's dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins, which we were filled with new Behold, they are torn, and these are clothes, and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. And so the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and they were living within their land. The sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Their cities were Gibeon and Shifirah and Beheruth and Kiriath-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which 
We swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. And Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying we are from a far country, or we are far from you, when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was told, certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, you're in your hands. Do as it seemed good and right in the sight, in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Well, there's some truths illustrated here for us, warnings to us. One, when we do not seek the counsel of the Lord, we are easily deceived. When we do not seek the counsel of the Lord, we are easily deceived. This is what we see here. Deception is a, a major weapon in the hand of our enemy. We see the Gibeonites were crafty. The same word is used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, to speak about the serpent in the garden. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The word crafty means cunning, shrewd. They were deceptive. This is how the enemy works. And I want us to see a couple things about deception. First of all, our eyes can be deceived. They made it seem as if they had come from a far country. They were wearing worn out clothes as if they had been on a long journey. Their wineskins were old and crumbling. The bread was dry and crumbled. Some commentators even say the word means moldy. Their sandals were worn out. They gave every appearance of being from a far country, and yet they lived just around the corner. Our experience tells us that Seeing is believing. That's how we operate in our world, right? Seeing is believing. If I see it, I believe it. Do you know that not everything you see is right, is real? Not everything we see is according to what is really real. What is reality from God's perspective? 
Last week we saw from Psalm 73, Asaph. What did he see? Well, the wicked are prospering. Until he went into the sanctuary of God. Until he gained God's perspective, then he perceived their end. Then he saw what was really real. Joshua and the leaders were deceived by their eyes. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He gives every appearance of being from God. We live in a world today where images are easily manipulated through technology. What you see on a screen, what you see in the movies, what you see in the magazines can be manipulated. You watch movies that were done 30, 40 years ago compared to movies today. You say, wow, how cheesy <laughs> that all was. They didn't have the technology to make it look real. You watch today and you say, man, how did they just destroy the city of London? It's still there in reality, and yet on screen it looks like it just went underwater. And how did this happen? They can make anything look real today. Our eyes can be deceived. Their ears can be deceived. They mix just enough truth with a lie to make it sound believable. Verse 9 and 10. We are your servants. So your servants have come from a very far country. That's the lie. What's the truth? Because of the fame of the Lord your God. We heard of the report of him and what he did in Egypt. They had heard that. God really did do a miracle in Egypt. They heard about it. They heard about what he had done to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. They heard about that. Those were all true things. The lie was, they were from a far country. Oh my, we live in a world today where people know how to make things sound right. We're very eloquent in our culture today. Well, you don't have to look very far to see examples of this, do we? Our whole culture is built on lies. Political system is all built on lies, and it really doesn't even matter which side you come down on. So much of it is built on lies, on what we can say to make you follow what we are saying. And it isn't just out there, it's in organized Christian circles. And there are so many who are standing behind pulpits in churches all over this country and even throughout the world who are making eloquent speech after speech and who are deceiving people with lies. Mixing some truth with lies. And leading millions astray. 
we can be deceived with what we see and with what we hear. Not only our eyes and our ears, but our egos. Our egos can be deceived. What did they say to Joshua? We are your servants. We've come to serve you. You are somebody. We want to serve you. Appealing to the desire to be somebody. We, we heard about how great your God is. That we left our home all the way far away and came here just to be your servants. Why would anybody do that? I must be something. And they would do that. In fact, they were so blinded Verse 14 tells us they took some of their provisions. What were those provisions? Worn out clothing, worn out sandals, worn out wineskins, and dry, crumbly, moldy bread. Wow. There's a real, there's a real gift. That's something to go after. You know, I can't help but think about the fact that the enemy makes all kind of promises. This world, our culture, makes all kind of promises. What is it that is delivered? Dry, crumbly, moldy bread. That's all the enemy has to offer. But see, if we get wrapped up in ourselves, and what and particularly the stuff of this place, and lose an eternal perspective, oh man, we're easily deceived. Our ego is easily stroked. There's a hidden agenda. Make a covenant with us. God told them to go into the land to not make an agreement with the people, but to drive them all out. Because there were people who had for generations been idolatrous and, and had, had been um, wicked. And God's judgment for them was to bring the people of Israel in to take over. God knew that if they left them there, they would be a hindrance to them in their walk with God. The Gibeonites were crafty. They knew what God said, as they confessed later. They knew what God had done. They knew. They believed God more than Israel did. They knew they had to do something, because if they didn't, they would be wiped out, because they believed God at his word. And so what did they do? They deceived him into making a covenant. The enemy wants to make an agreement. The enemy wants you to buy into his agenda. He wants you to compromise. 
And we are easily deceived when we do not seek God's counsel, God's truth, God's word. But secondly, when we don't seek the counsel of the Lord, then we make poor decisions. <laughs> so they made a covenant with them. They made peace with them. And then once that happened, three days later, they found out, oh, they're not from a far country. They live right next door in the cities just around the corner. But we can't touch them now. We can't do what God called us to do because we made a, a covenant before God. Do you know that decisions have consequences? Every decision you and I make, there are ramifications, good or bad. Poor decisions have consequences for our lives. For our lives. They had a consequence for Joshua, for the leaders. In chapter 10, the very next chapter, after the other cities around there found out what the Gibeonites did in making a, an agreement with Joshua and Israel, well, they, they joined forces and went after Gibeon. And then the Gibeonites cried out to Joshua, hey, we're your servants, you've got to help us. So now Joshua had to go fight their battles for them and protect them. He also had to protect the Gibeonites from his own people. And they grumbled against the leaders. Poor decisions have consequences for our lives, poor decisions have consequences for other people's lives, especially when we are leaders. And let me suggest to you, that all of us, in one way or another, are leaders. You may not have a position of leadership, especially maybe spiritual leadership, but as a follower of Christ, you have influence in someone else's life. Leadership is influence. If you have influence in someone else's life spiritually, you're a spiritual leader in one way or another. And so what you and I do matters and the decisions we make have consequences for our lives and for the lives of those around us whose lives are affected by our life. Poor decisions usually cause problems in relationships, and that's what happened here. The people grumbled against the leaders. <laughs> this isn't the first time they grumbled against the leaders, but every other time is because the leaders were doing what God wanted, and they were not wanting to do what God wants. Here, it's reversed. The leaders didn't do what God wanted, but the people did. Other people are affected by our decisions. Bottom line, we must seek the counsel of the Lord. It's just that simple. We must ask God. And this is, generally speaking, we, we, want, we, we need to want what God wants for our life. We make, a, we make so many mistakes in life by simply wanting our agenda rather than God's. And that's just generally speaking. Yeah, I didn't even understand this until I was a few years into Bible college. Because I was so conditioned to just want what I wanted. 
that day-to-day decisions were, were made based upon what I wanted. It was revolutionary when I finally realized, oh, wait a minute, that whole way of thinking needs to change. Even though I was outside, looked like a good Christian person because I was doing the right things, making many decisions that the Christian community would say, that's right, and I'm now about college. I, now God has, had called me to, to be following him in ministry, and I was tr- training for that and all those things. I didn't understand, at least to that level, what this was about. It, I had a double-minded heart that James talks about. We, we can continue to struggle with that, but we've got to get this settled in our mind. The, the, the focus of my life is about, is about what he wants for me, not what I want for me. And then once I get that kind of established, then it's about day-to-day decisions that implement that. And that starts with going to the Lord and his word, consistently asking God, show me what your word says, teach me who you are, that I might obey you better. Teach me what your word says that I might walk in accord with that. And then there are the daily things that come up that we might need to pause and say, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. I don't know what to do here. Give me wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We go to him. We must seek the counsel of the Lord. And let me just point you to one verse in the New Testament that helps us kind of get some principles here. And that is Philippians 4.6. Philippians 4.6 in, in the translation I use, the New American Standard, says, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let me read it from the New Living Translation because the New Living Translation is not a a word-for-word translation like the New American Standard or the King James, New King James. uh, They they translate from the original word-for-word and then make it in English, word-for-word. The New Living Translation is what's called a dynamic equivalent or a a thought-for-thought translation. In other words, it it looks at the whole verse and says, what is this verse saying and how can I say it best in in English? And the New Living Translation says this, Philippians 4, 6. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Four simple statements, four simple truths. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. The word that's used there in the original means nothing. It means there isn't anything here that we are to worry about, there's no exceptions. That doesn't mean that we're never concerned. I'm very concerned about the world that we live in right now. I'm very concerned about decisions that are being made on our behalf that impact our life. But I can honestly tell you I'm not worried. 
To worry is to fear. To worry is to be paralyzed by fear. That you cannot function. To worry is to fret. We're not to worry. Instead, we're to pray about everything. And again, that's all-encompassing. There is nothing that you and I can be concerned about that we shouldn't pray about. Nothing. So these first two go hand in hand. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Take it to the Lord. And so what are we doing with our concern that I know most of us, in the hearing of my voice right now, have grave concerns about what's going on in our world and our culture? What are we doing with that? According to the Bible, we're to be praying about it, not worrying about it. Not complaining about it, but praying about it. Worry demonstrates a lack of faith. Prayer shows we're dependent upon God. We are trusting Him. We really do believe that the God that we serve sits on the throne of the universe and He rules in the affairs of mankind. We say we believe that. Right? We say it here, but our actions prove it. And then the second two also go hand in hand. The third is, tell God what you need. Even the little things. Tell God what you need. How many times do you and I go through a day and we are faced with little decisions, right? Little problems. And I, this is my world, right? I get an email. This, this can't happen this way, so now we've got to shift. We've got to, i got to make a decision to, to adjust. Um, things happen. You, all of us face this, whether it's with our own family, in the workplace, wherever it is, we're, we're responding. How many times we go through day after day after day making adjustments and never once stop for a moment and say, God, what should I do here? <laughs> Most of those little things, we think, that's a no-brainer. I don't know what to do. I don't need to bother God with that one. I can make this decision. I'm all grown up. I wonder if that's what Joshua thought. I need to seek God. I can see with my eyes. They've come from a far country. Look at their clothing. Look at their sandals. Look at their bread. Why on earth would anybody come from around the corner with crumbled up bread? Even though I'm looking and saying, maybe, but... I'll ask him, are you from here or from far away? Oh, well, we're from far away. Oh, that, that settles it for me. So many times, particularly as followers of Christ, we have an intuition in these moments, right? Something doesn't seem right. It might all look right, but something doesn't feel right. <laughs> Don't dismiss that too quickly. That might be the Holy Spirit. 
Tell God what you need. God, I need wisdom. I don't know. I think I know what to do. I think that if I make this decision, this is what's going to happen. But I don't know the future. But I know the one who does. So, Lord, what should I do? Is there any, is there any scripture that would apply to this right now that you can help me think about? Or, you know, I'm not talking about spending an hour in prayer every time you have to make a decision. What about just pausing and saying, Lord, I need wisdom. Guide me. I think, I'm gonna, I think this is the right thing to do. I'm going to proceed. But if it's not the right thing, Lord, would you, would you stop it? Would you redirect? Would you do something here? Or, Lord, I, I don't have the resources to, to deal with this thing. Would you, would you meet this need? Would you take care of this? It might be a little thing. It might be a very big thing. Valerie and I, this past week, had the opportunity to go away for a few days to a, a retreat with, with a few other uh, ministry leaders and their wives and, and uh, ministry couples. And uh, one of the, the families, uh, the couples that were there, were sharing um, with us. Uh, they had been in ministry in homeless, uh, ministry to homeless people in Columbus, Ohio, for over 30 years. They established a ministry, and, and God caused that ministry to grow. And they, they, they just reached so many people, and they established a church that was thriving. Um, and, and at one point, the, the building they were in, uh, I guess it was the church building that they had, had purchased, needed a new roof. And, um, and he was traveling back from a speaking engagement, and, uh, and he was on the phone with, I guess, the contractor who did the evaluation, and he was told it's going to cost $55,000. And he said, I pulled off the side of the road, and I, I said, Lord, <laughs> we need a new roof, and, and it's going to cost $55,000. I don't got it. You're going to have to supply. This is your ministry. He got home. His wife only knew there was a problem with the roof. She didn't have a clue what this was going to entail. They went out to dinner that night with a couple that's a supporter of the ministry. Um, he didn't say anything to her about the phone conversation, about his prayer, nothing. Just went home. They, they had this previous engagement, went to their house to, to go out to dinner, and the couple said, come on in for a minute. They sat down in their living room, and they said, we, we felt like God wanted us to give you this. They handed him an envelope. And inside was a check for guess how much? $55,000. Again, that's a big thing. What is it we need from God? What is it that we need God to do? Here's how we sometimes, oftentimes, operate. With the little things, we think, well, I got this. I'm all grown up. I can make decisions. And we don't consult the Lord. <laughs> then when it comes to the big things, we're not sure what God's will is. Therefore, we're not sure that we should ask him for that. I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, um, as, as you know, um, PMI had to close the Waynesboro Center because of several issues uh, with the building and, and, and um, director resigned because of, again, things most likely going on with the building. The, there was just all kinds of bad things there. 
when, we, when it came to our attention, we had to do something, so we closed down the Waynesboro Center with angst, but we had a desire to open up again. Well, it was going to cost money to get a, get a place that was sufficient. Um, and so we began to pray for God to supply. And I felt, as I was praying, God laid upon my heart to pray that God would give us a building. Not, we wouldn't have to pay for it. But I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you that I was embarrassed to tell the rest of the people on the board. Because I was afraid. If I told them, I believe God wants us to pray that God, he's going to give us the building. And if he didn't give us the building, I would look like I didn't know what I was talking about. I look like I don't, have, I don't know how to discern God's voice. So I prayed about it, but I kept it to myself. And what does God do? He gives us a building free of rent. And inside I'm thinking, man, if I would have, if I would have, told everybody, then we could have all been praying, and then when this happened, we could, have, we could have rejoiced that God hears our prayers. Specifically, how God did that thing for us. Instead, now I've got I to come with, with, with some, some embarrassment and say, I just didn't have, have enough trust in and God's leading me that way. Now, I want to tell you, I don't always feel a sense like that in things I pray about that God's going to do something specific. It's happened a handful of times over the years. And every time, God has done exactly what he told me to pray. Again, it's an impression in my heart. It's not a voice or anything. It's just, I just had this sense. And so, but I, I want to learn to Trust God in that and take those things to God and, and, and ask God to tell me what is it that I need, to tell Him what I need and to trust Him to meet that need. And then when He does, I can thank Him for all He has done. I can, I can acknowledge Him in all these things. I better see how God, as a loving Heavenly Father, hears the prayers of His people and answers them in accord with His will. Everything God does is good. It's good for us, and it's for His glory. And so we ought to thank Him for all He has done. When we don't ask... When we don't seek the Lord, we are easily deceived. And then we make poor decisions. And those decisions have consequences for our lives and others. But if we seek the Lord, not worrying about anything, praying about everything, telling Him what we need and thanking Him for what He does. Man, you imagine what our lives would be like? Whatever comes, man, we're not worried. We're praying. We have a need, we make it known. And when he meets it, we thank him. We live in that. Our hearts are continually revived and renewed in the presence of the Lord. We learn to trust our Father with all things. We learn to thank our Father for all things. We learn to live in dependence upon our God. Let's pray.
Father, we want to thank you today that you do all things well. That you are at work in the midst of tragedy and triumph. You reveal to us <clears throat> needs that we have through the circumstances of life because you want us to call out to you, to trust in you, to invite you to work. Lord, when we know that our lives belong to you, that we're responsible to you, when we know that you're in charge, when we believe that you are the Almighty One who can do whatever He wants, when we believe these things, we talk to you about them. When we know that you have not called us to live independent lives, but in dependence upon you lives. We will pray. We will not worry. We'll make our needs known. We'll do so with a heart of gratitude. God, teach us to seek the counsel of the Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.